The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is able to work and move in this place. I pray by the power of your spirit right now that you would enable me to get out of the way, that your word would be heard, that your word would go forth in power, that we would be strengthened, encouraged, challenged, convicted as you know we need. And Lord, I pray that something supernatural and real actually happens this morning, that we don't just attend a service and hear me talking and sing a few songs and go out, and it's as if nothing happened in this building. God, we want to see transformation this morning by your Spirit. I need to be transformed. Everybody in this room needs to be transformed. This text is very clear on that. So would you prick our hearts, would you move by your Spirit, and would you be the very good God that you are right now? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we dive too deep into this text, I want to make a couple of disclaimers. Number one, I found my heart really wrestling with something as I prepared this week. And one of the things that I really found my heart wrestling with was this. I kept having this train of thought running in my head of, oh, this is good. So-and-so really needs to hear this. Like, this is really, like, I'm thinking of people right now that this verse is for them. And God had to slow me down and go, wait a second. This is for you. Like, this is for you. That, you're probably preaching this because you need it more than anyone. So I want to say this. Don't play that game this morning. This is going to be a challenging text. Fight against that temptation to think of the person in your life. Because we talk to each other all day long. Everyone in this room, we know each other through communication. And it's so easy because we know how we've been hurt. But God's word is clear for us this morning that we all stumble in many ways. So nobody gets the hall pass this morning. So, oh, good, it's about the tongue. I'm good. I'm going to sit and pray that my neighbor is listening and tune out. Nobody has that past this morning. This is for you. This is for me. Secondly, I want to say this. This is a tough text. 
It's really hard. It's really straightforward with us, and it's not very flattering towards us, right? I think, I just read it. You heard it. A world of fire. We can tame lizards and all sorts of stuff, but we can't tame our tongue. That's not flattering of us. But I want to say this. This text may at times feel like it's heaping on condemnation, like you stink, you stink, you stink. But I want to say this. We are getting and driving this morning towards grace. God has a word of grace for us this morning that he can and will, through what his son has done, transform our hearts. So I want to lay my cards on the table this morning and be really honest with you. I believe this is one of the most important words that our church could have right now. It's an incredibly important text for us. James is going to tell us one simple thought this morning. Our words and the way we talk to and about each other matter. They matter deeply. He's going to show us that the clearest indicator in this church and in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces of spiritual health and spiritual sickness is the way that we talk to and the way that we talk about one another. So in light of that, let me ask this question. If you've been around for a while, you know Story City Church is a brand new church, relatively new, I should say, at this point. Matt and I moved our families here uh, two and a half years ago. We planted officially a little over a year ago. And you can see, look around you, it's Memorial Day weekend, and the room is not empty. There's a lot of people at barbecues right now that would normally be filling these seats. And yet we're here. And all that to say, though we're young, our church has grown pretty quickly for the area we're in. And we praise God for that, right? Like, our church has grown quickly. God is doing something But because of that, one of the byproducts of that is that we've got people in this room that are pulled from all over the place, from different walks of life, with different backgrounds, with different theological experiences, with different theological upbringings. Can I even say it? With different political views, with different views on family and how a house should be run. So I want to ask this question. We're young. We're a new church. How do we, as a group of 200-plus-ish people begin to exemplify and model in the spirit of truth the love and joy and unity that the gospel always gives when the word of God is on the move? How do we get out of our own way and stay out of either one of two pitfalls? Avoiding our differences altogether, never talking about them, dancing around them so that we don't ever have to deal with our differences, or the other one of running headlong into them aggressively, becoming bitter, becoming gossipy, becoming angry, How do we stay out of these two pitfalls and become a community of Christ followers that with our tongues, with our speech, with the way we interact with each other, display the goodness of our God by walking in peace and unity? Well, before we dive into James in detail, I want us to take a look at another text this morning that I believe paints this picture very clearly for us as a church body. And I want to say this. I'm preaching to you individually this morning. I'm preaching to myself individually. But I believe this is a word for a community right? This is a word for us as a church. We're listening to this together, and we're coming underneath it together as a body. So think in that way as we read this. I want to share a few verses with us that I believe paint a picture of how a group of diverse people can truly walk in love, forgiveness, grace, and unity. It's in Ephesians 4. It'll be on the screens. I'm going to start in verse 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, "'Be completely humble and gentle.'" Be patient, and then I love this, Be bearing with one another in love. The reason I love that is because Paul is just so honest when he writes that. He's like, look, you're going to have to bear with one another. Like, it's going to be hard sometimes. You're a mess. They're a mess. Bear with it. Come up underneath it and stand. And then he goes on. Make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There it is again. There's going to be an effort in this church if we are going to be a church marked by unity in the gospel. And what does that effort look like? So often it's going to look like forgiveness for people that hurt us, letting things go, choosing not to inflict the pain that someone has inflicted on us back on them to get back at them, but choosing to forgive. It's going to look like walking in grace towards people that think differently towards us. It's going to look like confession and repentance when we're the ones who've done wrong. Those are all the things that are effort for us this morning. This is effort that our church and our souls are going to exist. But Paul goes on, if we can skip down to verse 13. He says this, once we've put this effort forth, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So he says, look, you've put the effort forth until you get to this point. And what is that point? Unity in the faith and in what? In the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to say this, that effort, the real thing we exert our effort towards at Story City Church, the reason we get up here week after week and open this book and preach gospel truth to our hearts is because the only thing that can unify us in this culture marked by fear, increasing division, increasing vitriol, the only thing that can unify a group of grace-begging sinners is the knowledge of the Son of God. Period. End of story. If we know Jesus, we will find a byproduct flowing out of that of love, joy, unity, forgiveness, grace. If we don't know Jesus, we might be able to fake it for a week, but we're done after that. We will fall. We will be in a cycle of getting it right for a few days, becoming self-righteous, falling off the horse, beating ourselves up. We have to remember the Son of God in this place, what he's done, what he's accomplished for us, what he's given to us freely, that his grace is poured out on us even when we're failing, even when we're cursing, even when we're gossiping. His grace is lavish on us because Jesus died to absorb the punishment for that already. It's finished. It's accomplished. So I want to ask this question. Do we have the knowledge of the Son of God in our hearts this morning? Do we understand who he is? Do we understand what he has done, what he has accomplished for us? It's our one great goal at Story City Church. And what does Paul say in this text is the byproduct of that? What's the first thing he points to? Until we all reach the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, attaining the whole measure of fullness of Christ, then... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. This is a picture of the immature church that doesn't have the knowledge of the Son of God dwelling in their hearts. He says they're blown back and forth by every wave. Everything that someone says, every false little thing that gets taught, every scheming word that gets gossiped through the community, it lights up like wildfire because there's nothing rooting you. That's the immature church. But the mature church that has the knowledge of Jesus, of what he's accomplished, what does he say happens? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. What's one of the first fruits that grows on the tree of a heart, soul, mind, and community that has the knowledge of the Son thriving in their heart? They begin to speak the truth in love one another. Isn't that interesting that that's what he paints as a contrast against all of these other things? We begin to speak the truth and love. And as we'll unfold in a little bit, I believe that the tension of truth and love in our speech is the only way to prevent our words from being poisonous. See, I think so often when we feel our tongues running wild, when we hear ourselves gossiping or spreading 
or exaggerating the truth or saying things, going places we know we shouldn't go with our tongue, we think, ah, no big deal, right? Like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but it's just words. They said they're gone now. Aside from the fact that we really don't know the power our words have in a community, James says they're like a spark that lights wildfire. James is also going to tell us that our words aren't just things that we say. They are things that spring up from our very heart. He's going to say that your words aren't just things you say. Your words are who and what you are. As a man speaks, so he is. That's what he's going to say for us this morning. Our words matter. They're a big deal. So all that said, James has, I believe, four points for us this morning. And I want to talk through those. His big point is that our words matter. And I want to say our words matter because they're powerful. Our words matter because they can be poisonous. Our words matter because they can pollute our praise individually and corporately. And our words matter because they reveal what's in our hearts, as we just said. So first off, words matter because they are powerful. So I have an almost three-year-old daughter named Gracelyn. Most of you guys probably know her. Um, she is probably going to be running through here any moment screaming. That's just kind of what she does. Um, if, just, just let her do her thing. Uh, we ha- she's learning words right now. It's fun to watch. Like, she's picking up words daily. New words are coming. New half words. She'll say things. Like, uh, when she's using the restroom, she likes privacy. That word is kakasi, which I think is kind of funny because kaka's in it. But anyways. Um, uh, but she has all sorts of words that aren't really words, right? But there's this thing. The new, my new favorite with Gracelyn is uh, we've developed this thing where she'll get up in my lap. And I don't know where I did it for the first time. I think it's because I'm a genius. But I just I said, Gracelyn, come here. I got a secret for you. And I got up real close in her ear and I said, I love you. And she, this was an amazing moment. She says, me too. And she puts her head up to my ear and she says, I love you too. And I'm, whew, I'm just telling you like chills every time. I do it like 20 times a day now. She's so sick of it. But I'm just like, Gracelyn, tell me how much you love me. But that is a beautiful picture. Her words go deep. Even though she probably honestly only vaguely understands what she's even saying, I don't care. I'm like, you, I'm recording this. I'm showing it to you on your wedding day. You mean this from the depths of your heart and soul. And if you ever take it back, I've got it on tape. But look, her words are so powerful. They go down into the depths of who I am. They speak to the very essence of my being. And James is telling us this morning, that is the power that words have. Your words are powerful. Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way. The tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power to give life and the power to speak death. And James agrees with this proverb this morning. He starts by warning me and anyone who would desire to teach in the church that they should be very careful, saying they will be judged with greater strictness. He's teeing it up on this. He's saying, look, this is where we start. Like, teachers, you better be careful. You should be really intentional if you're going to aspire to that place in the church, because you're going to use a lot of words, and you could try to use them for good, but you could actually, as a teacher, do a lot of damage to people around you. You're accountable. You're judged with greater strictness, but then he's going to pull us out beyond that and say, look, that's where we start, but this is for everybody. He goes on to give three pictures of what our words are like. He compares our tongues to a bit in the horse of a mouth. I don't know if anybody in this church has ridden a horse any time recently. My guess is if you have, but they are surprisingly large animals. Like when I see them in movies, I kind of think, oh, it's a horse. But then when I see a horse in life, I'm like, wow, that is a large animal. 
that could really hurt me quickly if it decided to. And James is saying this large animal, though large, is steered by this very tiny object that you put in its mouth. I have never ridden a horse, so I know nothing about that, but I understand the concept. Secondly, he compares it to a ship, a large ship, think like Titanic big, and he says that huge, massive ship is steered by a little, tiny rudder. This little thing has the ability to exert influence over the entire being of that ship. Then he says, just like a wildfire, your tongue can be a spark. You say one word, and it can spark up a wildfire that runs out of control and burns things down. That's three illustrations, all giving us the same point this morning. This little piece of flesh between our lips and teeth though seemingly small and seemingly insignificant, is actually the very thing that sets the course of our lives, the course of our communities, the course of our families, the course of our hearts. Your tongue matters. It is powerful. Everything in your life is controlled by how you decide to use it, and everyone you come into contact with in your life is either strengthened or torn down by how you decide to use it. So that's what words do. They are powerful. They influence. But how do they do it? I'll put it really simply this morning, and then I'll explain. I think that words are so powerful because words have the ability to create realities. I think that words have the ability to create realities. What do I mean by this? Well, let's think about it this way. God, what was the first words that God ever said? Does anyone know? The first words we have on record in existence being spoken. Let there be light, right? Let there be light. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and light was. God used words to create. That wasn't an accident. God doesn't do anything on accident. God used words to bring everything we see into being. Let there be. And we, as image bearers, carrying the Imago Dei, the image of God built into us from birth, model that, we picture that, we mirror that back. We don't have the ability, if you do, please come find me, we need to pray for you. We don't have the ability to speak things into existence in a moment, physically. That would be really scary. But we do have the ability to create emotional, spiritual realities in our lives and in the lives of people around us. So let's take gossip, for example. If you use your words to gossip, if you spread subtle lies and confusion about someone in your church or at work, or what are you doing? You are shaping the reality of the way that person is viewed in the minds and hearts of the people around you, of the people that you tell. You are implanting a reality that they will respond to, that they will live in line with in their mind and in their hearts. You have created, in essence, potentially bitterness, unforgiveness, confusion, and you've breathed them out through your gossip. And now that's a reality people have to deal with and live within until it's undone through words used in the right way. Gossip creates a reality. It's like wildfire. It's powerful. What about if we use our words to deceive, to lie, to spread falsehoods? What about in a marriage? Now, if you lie to your spouse, big or small, what have you done? You've created distance, whether they know it or not. If you've told a lie to someone in your life, they are now forced to live in a reality that is not true. There is distance between you and them. You've altered the reality of your marriage. You now have to be careful what you say and how you say it, where you go and when you go there. That person doesn't know and they're gonna treat you in not accordance with reality. Your lie has created a reality in your marriage and it's been shaped by your untrue words. One more. What about when we use our words to degrade or cut somebody down, to really hurt them? Let's think of a parent, for example. If you, as a parent, can't control your tongue, 
a hard one for me. <laughs> if you can't control your tongue, and you consistently say things to your kid, maybe like, even in jest, like, oh, you dummy. You're so stupid. Maybe a little harsher. Man, you're such a spaz. You weirdo to your kid. Why can't you control yourself? What are you doing with those words? You are speaking a reality that goes directly into that child's heart that becomes like toxic chemicals under the soil of their soul that they live with, and it literally shapes their self-perception. It shapes the way they view themselves. It shapes the way they think of themselves. And that view of themselves that you're putting in them is going to potentially shape the course of their life. Your words are creating your reality within the heart of that kid. This is why the most deceitful adage ever penned, in my opinion, you guys may have heard this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right? We've heard it? Yeah? Amen. Thank you, Darrell. It's not true. The Bible has nothing close to saying that. The Bible would actually say our words can go places sticks and stones can't. Our words can do damage that sticks and stones could never do. They can cut to the quick. Our words are powerful. Secondly, James would tell us, not only that our words are powerful, but our words matter because they can be poisonous. They can be poisonous. And like I said, there's some heavy stuff, but we're working towards grace this morning. We're working towards grace this morning but we have to get a clear view of what's at stake. James writes in verses six through eight of chapter three, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of poison. James does not mince words right here. In a matter of two sentences, he tells us that we don't have power to tame our tongue, that our tongues are literally set on fire by hell, that's a crazy one, and that our tongues are a restless evil full of deadly poison. He almost descends into comedy here, right? He's like, look, we can, you can tame Shamu and get her to jump through a hoop, a killer whale, and people will applaud and eat their peanuts, but no man can tame the tongue. Which begs the question, if he says our words are full of deadly poison, what kind of words are so poisonous? Like not everything that we say is poisonous, right? There's a way to use words well. So what makes words poisonous? Well, I believe that James actually, if we look a little farther forward in the book of James, gives us the answer in chapter 5. He's going to simplify and dilute it down for us in two verses and tell us two kinds of words and two characteristics of words in our tongues that make them poisonous in a community and in a family and so on. And that is untruthful words and unloving words. Words that are untrue and words that are unloving. So keep those kind of tucked away. Those are the two categories we're going to talk through for the next five minutes. The first verse that he uses in James chapter 5 verse 12, he quotes his brother Jesus and he says this, above all my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, I've read that verse many, many times in my life, and I've got to be honest, I always read it and kind of went, huh, what, what does he, what, like, really, of all the things in this book, swearing, that's like, that's like saying yes or no really emphatically. That's the thing he's going to say above all else. Don't do this. Well, as I studied, I learned something this week. Well, here's what James is saying to us with this verse. He's saying, 
on earth, when you really have to like make sure someone's telling the truth in court per se, you put your hand on a Bible, right? And it's as if you're saying, my words matter right now. Like they, I am held to a high authority with my words and I'm going under an oath. James is saying this, if you're a Christian, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you live your very life in the sight of a holy God and you don't need a Bible to swear on. You are always under oath. Everything you say is under oath in the eyes of God. And because of that, for a Christian, the first category of poisonous words is untruthful words where we break the oath, where we go out of oath. The second one is in James 5, 9. He gives us our second kind of poisonous words. He says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now the phrase to grumble literally means to roll the eyes as you speak. Now, I kind of thought maybe we could skip over this because I'm sure no one in this room has ever done that, right? To roll the eyes as you speak. It means to speak without love in your heart, to be unkind with your words, to talk about someone in a sense and go, can you believe that? Oh my goodness, right? That's, like, that's what it's painting a picture of you. That's grumbling against one another. And those kind of words are poisonous. So I want to look at why those words are poisonous. So quickly, what makes untrue words poisonous? One commentator put it this way, hone in on this. There are lies of gossip that make haters out of us. There are lies of advertising that make money out of us. There are lies of politicians that make pawns out of us. Lies always demean, always disempower, always, dis- get this, always distort people's view of reality so that they cannot live wisely. Why are lies poisonous? At the end of the day, lies at their root are exploitative. They exploit the person that lie is being exerted upon. Think of this in the macro and the micro. On the highest level, what happens to a society or a culture if it can no longer trust the information it's been given from its government or its media? This might hit a little close to home for us. I'm not going to say those, that two-word phrase that everyone's thinking. Okay. All of a sudden, the society begins to deteriorate because it can't trust. It's being lied to. It's being manipulated. Lies are always, always, always disempowering and exploitative. Secondly, what's so poisonous about unloving words? A lot of people, especially in the Christian community, I gotta fess up, think this. They think, it really doesn't matter how I say the truth. What matters is that I tell the truth, right? Like, I know the truth. I got the angle. Everyone needs it. It doesn't matter how I say it, when I say it, where I say it. It matters that I say it, right? Like, that's what matters, because I got the truth. I got the corner. James would say that is categorically not biblical. The Bible would say that if your words are full of truth but not full of love, they are actually not committed to the truth. Now let me, let me work this out. How does this work this out? Why, can't, why are words that are true but not committed to love categorically not committed to the truth? Let's think about this. If you're trying to tell somebody something difficult that you know they won't like, that they won't want to hear, if you are harsh with them, if you lash out, if you had bad timing, you're not actually swaying their heart. You're actually increasing their resistance, right? Like if you scream the truth at somebody, if you're harsh, if you're confrontational, if you have bad timing and you just don't care, they just need to hear it, you know deep down, I know deep down that I'm not actually standing much of a chance at all of breaking down that person's resistance to the truth. I'm actually increasing it. Deep down, we know that. 
And there, in that moment, you, re you reveal that your heart isn't actually interested in all in pulling them towards the truth or persuading them. You're interested in exerting power over them, in punishing them for not seeing what you already see, in exposing them for not already seeing what you see, right? Does that make sense? You track with that? I know it's a hard truth, but you're not really operating as an ambassador of truth if you're just seeking to hurt and expose someone for believing lies deep down. If there's not truth in your love, your truth is not ultimately committed to the truth. And in the same sense, if there's not love in your truth, your love is not ultimately committed to love. I don't think I said that right. This is why Proverbs 25 says, a gentle tongue can break a bone. That's an interesting picture, right? Like a gentle tongue breaking a bone. I don't ever want to see that illustrated. Um, that's a weird picture. But what does it mean? It means that breaking a bone... Breaking a bone means gentle words are the most able to break down the hardest resistance to an idea a person may possess. If you're going to confront somebody with a truth they don't want to hear, what's the first default position of their heart going to be as you confront them on this thing they don't want to see? The first thing they're going to do is they're going to start looking for reasons to discredit you, right? Like, oh, sure, maybe you're right, but you're just like this. This is why you're saying that. I don't, I don't have to listen to that. They're going to look for a reason to discredit you. But... If you're gentle, if you're patient, if you wait for the right time and do it as gently and lovingly, as kindly as possible, your gentle tongue can break a bone. You give yourself a chance of persuading through kindness, through humility, through taking the low road. And not just in this way of like, I'm taking the low road, so you're on the high road, I want you to see that, I'm on the low road. No, genuinely, I am honoring you above myself. I'm bearing with you. I'm being humble, patient, gentle. Not for anything other than because the Lord has called me to that. So there's, there's two categories of poisonous way, words that we can have in this community, in our homes, with our friends, and it's untrue words that are exploitative and unloving words. So thirdly and very quickly, we're gonna move a little quicker here. Our words matter because they can pollute our praise. So they, they matter because they're powerful. They matter because they can be poisonous. They matter because they can pollute our praise. James unfolds this in verses 9 through 12. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human be beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So here's a picture for us. Maybe it's a reality that some of us engaged in this morning. You wake up. It's Sunday morning. You got to get ready for church, right? You overslept a little bit and you walk out and your son or daughter has taken the cereal you just poured them and thrown it at the wall. And there's Cheerios plastered and there's milk all over the floor and you respond, oh, get your act together this morning. Not this morning. Not this morning. Or you're a roommate and you woke up and your beloved roommate has decided to wear the, the shirt that you had picked out to wear that day without asking you. And you respond, you're so entitled. Keep your hands out of my stuff or at least ask next time, right? And you walk away. Or maybe your spouse, I've never been guilty of this, has left a bunch of crusty dishes in the sink for you waiting. And you had budgeted your time, so you had just enough time to get out the door on time. But now, I have to deal with scraping last night's lasagna off the plates. That was your job. Why didn't you do that? Come on. 
You never pitch in. You get in the car. You sit mostly in silence as you drive to church, exchanging a few verbal jabs. But then, but then, you walk up to the doors, to the entrance of the church, the glass beacons, the pearly gates. And supernaturally, in an instant, your grumpiness, your frustration is transformed. A smile falls upon your glowing face. Good morning, brother. How are we? Such a joy to see you today. I'm so glad you've joined me at this glorious occasion at church. We're here to worship. Got to get my praise on. Then you walk in the room and you begin to sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. James is shining a light on that this morning, on all of us. First to say guilty, guilty, in need of grace. And James is shining a light on us and saying, can a salt, can, a, can, can pure water and salt water flow from the same fountainhead? No, it will be one or the other. Church, if we are walking into this room this morning, with cursing on our lips towards our spouses, towards our roommates, towards our friends, and then opening our lips in praise to the one true living God. By grace, he receives it, but it is polluted. God wants pure words. And James is drawing the point out for us this morning that there's just a contradiction there. Are you feeling convicted? Because I am. Our words matter because they can pollute our praise. Lastly, our words matter because they reveal our hearts. Our words matter because they reveal our hearts. And here we get to the real meat of the issue. Here we get to the real answer. The reason our tongue, this thing, this small thing is so impossibly difficult to tame is because our tongues are driven by our hearts and our hearts are driven by what they find their identity in. I'll say that again. It won't make a ton of sense, but I'll try to explain our tongues are driven by our hearts, and our hearts are driven by where we find our identity. So the work of taming our tongue isn't just the work of taming our tongue. It's actually the work of taming our hearts and realigning our identity to be rooted in Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 6.45. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Uh, there's a scene. So I started watching Harry Potter yesterday. Never seen it. Don't judge me. Danielle, thank you. She, she, uh, she hooked me up with the movies. Um, in the first movie, there's this scene, and I'm not a Harry Potter expert, so Harry Potter experts in the room, forgive me. There's a scene where Harry Potter stands in front of a mirror called the Mirror of Erised. And all of a sudden, he's an orphan, and he, starts, he sees his parents standing behind him in the mirror. And he's like, this is so weird. My parents died when I was a little kid. I don't understand. And he pulls his buddy Ron Weasley over, and he's like, Ron, come stand in front of this mirror. Tell, tell me what you see. And Ron stands in front of the mirror, and he goes... I'm the captain of the cribbage team, and I, I just got handed the gold medal, and everyone's applauding for me. And they're like, what in the world? And then Dumbledore walks in. I feel like a total nerd right now. <laughs> Dumbledore walks in, and, and they're like, Dumbledore, what is this mirror showing us? And he says, that mirror is showing you the deepest desire of your heart, that thing that you believe if you had it, you would finally be okay with yourself that thing that gets you out of the bed in the morning, that thing that you know would put you at rest. It's showing you what makes you tick. 
And that's a true reality for us. We all have that in our hearts. There's something, if we were to look into that mirror, there's something that would appear standing at our side, something that would change about us that we are clinging on to, that we believe that will finally make me okay. I could finally receive life joyfully if I had that. That is the thing that your identity is hanging upon. And James is getting at this tonight. Your heart cannot produce pure speech until your identity is found in nothing other than the death, resurrection, and love of Jesus Christ for you. If you're trusting in anything else, your heart is unable to produce pure speech. So let's flesh this out a little bit. What if your identity is in your reputation? What people think about you, being, having social collateral. Well, then when somebody criticizes you, you have no choice but to use your words to cut them down and regain your rightful place, right? You can't suffer being criticized if your identity is in your reputation. What if your identity is in being seen as smart, having intellect? Then when somebody belittles you or makes you feel stupid, you're going to have to climb back over the ladder and use your words as swords to get on top of them, to expose them as inferior to your intellect. All of a sudden, your words are weaponized because your identity has been threatened. What if approval and being liked is the most important thing about you? You're just a nice guy and you need everybody to like you. You'll be a coward. You'll never open your mouth. You'll be untruthful by withholding truth from people who need to hear it when they need to hear it because you're scared of offending or scared of upsetting. What if your identity is in having nice stuff? Like I gotta be the guy with the freshest jeans and the new iPhone and we've all met this guy, by the way. Somebody comes up to this guy and says, hey, check it out, I just got the new iPhone 7. He's man, I'm more of a Samsung guy. More of an Android guy. He's forfeited his ability to enjoy what you have, she has, because her identity is in having the nice stuff. So she can't, she's not free. He's not free to just love and appreciate and enjoy what you have because his identity is in having the nicest stuff. What if success in your career is the most important thing, the thing you have your heart and identity set on? You'll have no choice but to downplay the successes of other people, at the very least in your heart, but at the very most with your words. To attack anyone who gets in the way of your career with manipulation. What if your last one? What if your identity is in being a powerful leader or an influencer in your community? You will have no choice if that's your identity but to use your words to manipulate people, to get what you want out of them. You will gossip. You will find yourself gossiping and getting passive aggressive with anyone who doesn't want to get on your program. Do you see how all these false identities keep us from being set free to speak life? about and to one another. But here's the good news, and here's the grace I've been saying that we've been driving towards this morning. What if we became a church body full of people that deeply and truly have their identity, security, hope, joy, love, all rooted in what Jesus Christ has already given them, an identity that can never be taken away. It was never earned, so you can't lose it. He gave it to you freely. What if the thing that you saw in that mirror when you stood in front of it was nothing other than Jesus Christ himself resurrected with scars on his hands, standing, wrapping his arms around you, saying, you're mine. I love you. I died for you. I'm the king, and I say you're good. I'm the king, and I say you're worthy. I'm the king, and I say you're beautiful. All of this vitriol and anger and cutting and using our words the wrong way gets washed down the toilet instantly because we're set free. We have an identity we could never lose. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to jockey for social position. I know who I am, right? Like, what if that happens in our hearts in this church? What kind of church do we begin looking like? We will transform the city because that does not exist 
The knowledge of the Son of God is able to transform the darkest heart. The knowledge of the Son of God and what he has done freely is able. When you feel that grace washing over you, even in this moment when you feel convicted, as I do, by your words, the grace of God washing over you, saying, I paid already, paid in full, turn, repent, confess, and walk towards me, washing, flooding over you in grace, and you're washed clean. When that melts your heart, it changes you. And it changes the way you use this tongue. All of a sudden, the wildfires you're studying aren't burning things down. They are lighting the sky. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we have two options this morning. We can hear these truths about our tongue, and we can let it crush us. We can put it on our shoulders and say, I got to try harder. I got to strap on the backpack of effort and really try to get my stuff together so that I can transform my tongue. James would say, impossible. We all stumble in many ways. No man can tame his tongue. Or we can recognize our need this morning and we can fall down at the feet of Jesus. We can be undone at his feet and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we can feel the reality of Romans 5, verse 20, that says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Grace crushes judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment as we studied a few weeks ago. And we can find ourselves being melted by the reality of a God who loves us no matter what. We can be transformed. We can be changed. And we can begin to become that church that grows to unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. You want that this morning? I want that for this church this morning. I want it for my family, God. Please help. So lean into the grace of God. There is no judgment. Be exposed, but see the Savior that already saw you at your worst and loved you to the stars, loved you as much as he possibly could, and be free. Leave this place encouraged and strengthened. Let's pray. Father, these are tough truths this morning. It wasn't a fun text to study for somebody that only preaches every month or two. <laughs> Felt like I drew the two of spades. And uh, I just thank you that you chose this for me that you convicted me. I pray that you would help me to change. I pray for our church body right here. As we cohese, as we come together as a body, as a unit, would you help us to speak the truth and love through the knowledge of the Son of God? Would you set us free from our false identities, the false things we trust in, to rejoice in the successes of the people around us? to forgive the people that have hurt us, to rest in what Jesus has accomplished. Only you can give that. Effort can't get us there. Just seeing what Jesus has done can transform and melt our hearts this morning. That's what we need. That's what we ask for from you. And we believe by your spirit you can do it. Come now, Lord, have your way. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's stand.